2 Corinthians 5, verses 9 and 10 is where we'll start today. We ended our, our message last week with this passage, but we really didn't talk about it at all. So who will be judged and how will be judged? We're going to see a lot of details just in this little passage as we kind of dissect it a little bit. So 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10. 9 says this, So whether we are at home or away... We make it our aim to please him. Let me just summarize this again. If you went back, hopefully some of you did go back and read the whole chapter. Paul's talking about a death a little bit at this point. He's talking about death here and now. And we're going to get into this more in our heaven series starting in July. But what Paul's talking about is if, if when you die at this season, you're absent from your body. Meaning your body goes in the grave, but your soul, your spirit, goes to be with the Lord Jesus in the, the present heaven, you could say. And that's a, a non-normal state for us to be in as human beings. God created us to be physical and spiritual beings. And so that's how we are going to live for eternity. It won't be until the final resurrection that our bodies will be re connected with our souls it'll be a perfect glorified body and we'll live in a new heaven and a new earth for all of eternity just again as physical and spiritual people so Paul's talking about that hey if I die my, I'm away from my body if I'm in my body I'm at home in my body either way whatever state I might find myself in my aim is always going to be to please the Lord Jesus so that's what he's talking about here whether I'm at home or away you can read the the chapter yourself to get that context but then he goes on to say why why is he wanting to please the Lord he gives us the reason in verse 10 with the reason clause for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ why so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Okay, so let's break this down as we look at the who and the how from this passage. A whole lot is put into this passage. So I'm going to give you a simple uh, overall picture, and then we're going to break down and look at four little pieces within this passage that tell us very clearly how we'll be judged. So first one is this. My life as a Christian will be thoroughly evaluated by God so that I may be repaid in proportion to the things that I've done. My life as a Christian will be thoroughly evaluated by God so that I may be repaid in proportion to the things I've done. I've taken a little liberty in translating some of the words that are in the scriptures to help you understand what they mean, and we'll explain those as we go. That's what 2 Corinthians 9 uh, 5, 9, and 10 is saying uh, to be repaid in proportion or what is due. That word means to recompense, to pay someone back for what they have done. Seems kind of strange to use in this context, but we'll see why that's the case in, in God's graciousness to repay us for the things that he has told us in advance he would reward us for. So here's a, a little statement I want to read to you about, from uh, one commentator that I thought summarized this concept really well. He said this, the Bible does teach that there are and will be temporal and eternal consequences for the believer's sins. First, present unconfessed sin results in a loss of desire for service as one is out of experiential fellowship with God. Second, unconfessed sin also results in loss of power in the believer's life because sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, Unconfessed sin results in loss of opportunity since the sinning believer is not living according to the will of God. 
These are three very real present consequences of unconfessed sin in the believer's life. So in the big picture, a part of what we're being examined is our response and obedience to God. And here this commentator is just saying, even just presently, there's consequences from our, a loss of desire, a loss of power. When we sin, we lose the power that we have. We're out of fellowship and a loss of opportunity that leads to present losses. But those things also lead to eternal losses. He goes on to say this. Also, there are eternal consequences for the sinning Christian. When a believer is not walking in experiential fellowship with God, he is passing up opportunities for reward, which he will never have again. As a result, he will lose the reward that God would have so lavishly bestowed on him had he been faithful. This will be a real and eternal loss. That's a big picture of this. It's, this is the balance between the grace of our salvation that is 100% based on the work of Jesus Christ and the faithfulness of our response to that and, and what eternity will be like for Christians after that. His work is what determines whether we'll be there. If we've trusted in him, period, that's the basis of our salvation. But entrance into heaven is not the same as what heaven will be like for every single Christian. That's why Jesus even says the first will be last and the last will be first. He's talking about that in particular with Christians. Some people who may be believers, but they're living in a way that they want to be first here on this world and they want all the things that this world can offer, and we see them as being powerful and rich and having all the stuff that the world would want. They're first right now. But in heaven, a lot of those things are going to be turned completely upside down. And people who seem to be invisible because their pursuit was not the things of this world, but was rather loving and serving and giving of their lives for the sake of others, they're going to be in a totally different place when that happens. Okay, so here's four things we see in this passage. We'll explain some of those other things more so next week. But here's four ways in which uh, we will be judged or the hows, right from this passage. The first is this. I will be judged individually. I will be judged individually. Paul says it this way. And he's talking about Christians. You can say, well, isn't he just talking about people in general? I mean, Christians won't be judged for what we've done. No. Go back and read this passage and circle every single instance where Paul uses the word we, meaning us. He's talking to believers. In fact, most of those times he's saying things that could only be true of believers. If we are absent from our bodies, we're present with the Lord. That's not true of unbelievers. So the whole passage, he's saying we, meaning us Christians, Paul included, and the, the Christians at Corinth that he's speaking to. Okay, so we means us. This is us Christians that will face this, what's called the judgment seat of Christ, which is a different judgment than the great white throne judgment, which determines eternal separation from God. The judgment seat of Christ is not about salvation. The people at the judgment seat of Christ are already saved. It's about a reward of what you will have as you go into eternity. Okay, so he says in this passage, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All is pretty inclusive. Why? So that each one, each one, so will each one of us may receive what is due. It's not a group project. Remember those group projects in school where you slacked off the whole time and you had a partner that was really smart and you received the same reward they did? Yeah, you hated when you got stuck with guys like us, right, that never did anything and everyone else got... 
It ain't going to be a group project in heaven, guys. You will stand there one-on-one, no shirt tails to ride on. It'll be you and God. Finally, for once and for all, your younger brother or your sister will not be able to blame you for what you didn't do. This is going to be a one-on-one scenario. Nor will that jerk at work be able to take credit for the job that you did. Okay, this is a good thing. It shouldn't scare, well, it should put a healthy respect in you, but it should be a blessing because the truth is all of us want what's fair and just. And for the first time when we stand before Jesus, will absolute perfect justice come about. No one can blame you. You can't blame anyone else. It'll be you and him examining your life and how we've lived it before him. You won't end up with someone else's reward or punishment, nor will you be able to blame anyone else for any of your actions, even your parents. Can't blame mom and dad in this one. Right? We try that as we get to our age. We go, oh, if my parents would have done this, if my mom would have done that, if my dad would have done that. We try all those things, but when we stand before him, he'll say, what did you do, Chad, with your life in the circumstances in which I put you? Second thing we see in this passage is I will be judged justly. So I'll be judged individually. No group projects. It's me and, and Jesus. I'll be judged justly. He captures this in two phrases in here. He says, each one will, may receive what is due, not what isn't due, but what is due for what he has done. Okay, so there's that individuality again, but it's just. It's not about what we did or didn't do. It's what we did do, and it's exactly what, we're, uh, what we deserve in a sense. I'll be evaluated based on the actual facts and finally receive what I'm truly due according to God's truth not someone else's. No one else is going to have input into this. It'll be based on God's word as he's laid it out for us very clearly and perfectly. You've got to understand how beautiful a truth this is. See, probably every person in this room at some point has been unjustly treated. You've been robbed maybe in some situation. You've been wrongly hurt. Maybe you've been physically abused, spiritually abused, emotionally abused, maybe even raped or had someone murdered or his lives taken, and we live with the hurts and the wounds of those injustices in this world. Sometimes they, they scar us all of our physical lives. You know what's so beautiful about this truth? Is that this moment, every single injustice in your life will be made perfectly right. That's an amazing truth. It's a truth, Christians, that that should move us and motivate us to obey what Jesus says elsewhere is don't seek revenge for yourself. Paul says to the Romans, he says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Do not return evil for evil. The only reason you can live that way and not return evil for evil is because you know you have a hope in a God who will bring about perfect and total justice in its perfect time. You see, if you reject a God who's just, then all you can ever do is be revengeful. You cannot be a peaceful person and believe in a God who does not one day bring about 
justice. The only people who believe that, the only people who believe that, it sh- uh, that, that, that we should be peaceful and that God doesn't exist are people who have never truly been touched by the pain and suffering that this world offers. They've lived in their own little bubble. And, and that's a lot of us Americans. We struggle with these concepts because we don't live like the mo- majority of the world that sees all kinds of evil at levels that, that often don't touch our shores. You go live in another place where evil and injustice is very regular, and trust me, it'll change your worldview very, very quickly. This is a beautiful truth that we know God will take care of all things perfectly at that moment. Third thing we see in here is I will be judged completely. I will be judged completely. He says at the very end, he says, for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil, it's going to be a complete judgment. It's not God turning a blind eye to bad things and just looking at the good things. It's not going to be like our modern society where everyone gets a ribbon for participation. I'm telling you, a lot of the things that go on today in our society are deeply harmful to the psyche of, of what the world is really like. And I'm not talking about rewarding those who deserve earthly rewards in that way. That's, it can be wrong as well. Rewarding what's excellent in this world can be just as harmful as trying to give everyone a reward. But I'm letting you know, God has no problem. And, he, and there's all kinds of parables where the unfaithful person that did nothing, you know what? He took away even what they had and gave it to the faithful servant in many parables. God has given us so much and he expects us to steward it for his glory and for your own good. So I'll be judged completely. He says, good or evil. Many Christians believe we aren't accountable. And many Christians mistakenly think that because we're forgiven, that we're no longer accountable for our sin. That's not anywhere in the Bible does that come about. In fact, there's all kinds of examples where a a forgiven Christian is still lovingly disciplined for their sin. I'm not talking about condemned. There's a big difference between condemnation and discipline. And the word judgment in the scripture often is used in a general sense to cover all that. And it's assumed that as a Christian, hey, the condemnation part of it doesn't come about, but the disciplining part does when God judges us. Remember David, King David, the man after God's own heart? Certainly a man who, in his time, walked before God and was saved and one of God's children. And yet when he murdered Uriah and he had an adulterous affair with Bathsheba, God told him through the prophet Nathan that your sins are forgiven. However, your child through this adulterous affair will die. And not only that, there'll be trouble in your household from here on out. There's New Testament examples as well. Many argue Ananias and Sapphira, if you know their example of the early believers, they were uh, included with the early believers of the church, but they lied about an offering that they brought to the apostles' feet. And both of them were struck dead at that moment. Believers, it, it portrays them as believers, they were participating with the believers, but in their disobedience, they were disciplined even to death. The scriptures talk about that in a number of places. 1 Corinthians 11, God talks about the, the, the believers that were being disciplined, Paul said, because of their behavior, and, and yet they were participating in the Lord's Supper as if they were okay. 
And God says, some of you are sick, some of you are weak, and some of you have even fallen asleep, meaning you've died. Because you wrongly participate within the body. God had disciplined them. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul speaks of a believer whom he says who's in rebellious sin, and Paul says, you turn him over to Satan, which is a metaphor for church discipline, where they're removed from the body of Christ. He says, you turn that person over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul might be saved. That's discipline. God has no problem as a forgiven Christian loving us enough to discipline us towards holiness. It's the same with us as parents. Every parent should know that, that we should forgive our children. Forgiveness is so important as parents to offer to our children. But if all you ever did was forgive everything that your child did, you would not have a good child. You would not have a selfless child. You would not have a maturing child. You would not have a child who learned delayed gratification. You must both forgive and discipline a child's behavior toward holiness. The Bible is filled with, with examples of this. In fact, in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8, it says, if you are an undisciplined child, you are an illegitimate child. Meaning, one of the marks of being a child of God is that he disciplines you for the sake of holiness. So it's important that we don't take a, a, a worldview of what we have about God and, 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 and attitudes and bring it into our biblical view that since we're forgiven now, God's never going to deal with any of the sins in my life or address them, not in a condemning way, but in a, a disciplinary way. And the judgment seat of Christ very well could be that because we won't be in our new glorified bodies at that point. We will be held responsible for the way we've lived. That's what the Bible says. Finally, the fourth thing we see is I will be judged graciously. I will be judged graciously. See, even though our reward is based on or in proportion to uh, what we did, it says we're recompensed or paid back for what we did, the level of the reward that we see in Scripture will far exceed the level of work that we've done. You can say, well, how can we be paid back for what we do? What, what, what does God owe us? You know, God, big picture, owes us nothing. But the moment God enters into a covenant and makes a promise to anyone, he never fails to fulfill it. So the reason he owes us this, not in the sense that we often see, is because he has promised to do it. Just like a father, as I used last week, if I told my kids, I promise you, if you will mow the lawn today, I will give you $20 for that. And if they mowed the lawn and then came back and I failed to give them the $20, would that be a good father? No. It would be a, a father that lacked integrity and it was lying. And so what he's saying is that he will repay you for what is due because he's promised that any servant who does this is worthy of this. Not because he owes us anything, but because he's willingly put himself in that situation to pay it. And what we see in scripture is that every time he rewards, the reward he gives far exceed the level of work. Just read the scriptures. Sometimes it's tenfold rewards. Other times it's hundredfold rewards that God offers for our obedience to him. And at other times it's an immeasurable reward compared to the sacrifice or the work that we've done. 
It's totally gracious, beyond what we deserve. He puts us himself in a sense, almost like he's in debt to us, saying, if you will do this, I promise to reward you with this. That's how gracious he is in his rewards. Next principle I want to see is, is as strong as God's judgment is, we must keep it in perspective. So Romans 8, 1 and 2 says this. It helps us understand this next principle that's very important. Yes, we will be judged as Christians, but we must keep it in context with all of Scripture. And Romans 8, 1 and 2 says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. So what Christ has done for us is set us free from the law of sin and death. Meaning we don't any longer have to be condemned to eternal separation from God. Because he fulfilled the law for you and me. And he took that punishment upon himself. So now when judgment comes upon us as Christians, no longer can it result in condemnation anymore. The only judgment God brings to Christians now is a disciplinary loving judgment to make us holy, to sanctify us, to grow us up. And so my second point is this. I will not be condemned by losing my salvation at this judgment. I will not be condemned by losing my salvation at this judgment. These two truths put together are very important in a Christian's life. They should motivate one thing in our lives more than anything else. A willingness to confess our brokenness and our sin. You see, we run from one side to the other of that because of these things. We, th- we try to hide our sin thinking, well, if God knew that I was doing this, he, he would never accept me as a son. And so we shirk away thinking that he's somehow not going to find out. When in Jesus Christ, as we sang, come to the altar, the altar, this God has forgiven that. He's given us a gift in Jesus Christ that no longer any condemnation will come upon us for our sins. It should free us to be honest with what we're struggling with as Christians. On the other hand, the rewards should motivate us to think twice about what is it that we're still pursuing in this world that leads us astray to go after a temporal reward that will never last. Because the longer we pursue that temporal reward, the more we do damage to the eternal one that your Father is so longing to give to you. You see, God's not a killjoy like we often think of him. Oh God, you don't want me to have all this stuff here and you don't want me to, you know, to pursue all these things here. You just want me to you know, live in a little box or out in a you know, wilderness. No, that's, not, that's poor pictures of God. He wants you to let go and not be gripped by these simple pleasures in this world because he has pleasures that are so far beyond your imagination in the next. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it in his metaphor. He says, we're content to play in the slums in a mud puddle, thinking that that's great and exciting, and we're settled there when God has the ocean beach shores waiting for you and me to enjoy. Our hearts settle on temporal, simple rewards when he has so much more to give us. Last point, 
is 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. Um, say these words. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation, so Paul in this passage has talked about the foundation of Jesus Christ. As an evangelist, he brought that foundation. That's our, our salvation. Every one of us has a foundation that God has laid for us in Jesus Christ. Okay, that's the base. But now we build on it as builders with our lives. We don't affect the foundation. The foundation is done. It's through Jesus Christ. But what we do with that is our building that Paul's talking about here. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones, so those would be things that symbolize value, and wood, hay, or straw, those are the poor or the non-lasting materials, says each one's work will become manifest for the day and the day is often capitalized in your Bibles. It's referring to what we looked at in 2 Corinthians 5.10, the judgment seat of Christ, because Paul's talking to Christians here again. The day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved but only is through fire. So Paul uses a, a metaphor of fire. It's not to be intended literally. It's a metaphor that just says, God's going to test everything that we've done. Next week we'll look at what those things are that he's going to test. But he's going to test it all, and it's the picture of, of gold, silver, and precious stones, and wood, hay, and straw. And if you put fire on those three, the wood, hay, and straw, they're all going to burn up. If you put fire on gold, silver, and precious stones, they're all going to remain. He says that's what the judgment seat of Christ will be like with our lives. What's burned up, that person is going to suffer loss. They're going to realize that they spent their whole life pursuing personal selfish things rather than what God wanted them to pursue. And the person who faithfully serves Christ, they're going to build a, a life that's going to pass with them into eternity and be rewarded far beyond anything we could imagine in this life. My last point is this. I will receive a reward or suffer loss based on how I've lived my life. I will receive a reward or suffer loss based on how I live my life. You see, Jesus, when he lived, experienced the condemning judgment of his father on that cross. He was the perfect example of humanity. He owned everything. Think about that. Jesus was the richest man who ever walked on this earth. But how did he choose to steward his life? Did he build the biggest castles he could so that he could live in luxury? Did he provide every symbol pleasure he possibly could in this world because he could afford it for himself? Or did he look for the greater reward that was set before him? Did he say, people, I can't believe you're so attracted to this world because I know what awaits in the next. And he held everything in this world, his own life included, with an open hand. 
And when he came to the end of his life, in John chapter 17, he says, Father, I have done everything you've asked me to, be, to do. I've obeyed everything you've given me. I have glorified you in my life. Now glorify your son. And glorifying his son was hanging him on that cross to show you and me a love that this world has never, ever known. A God who would obligate himself to broken, sinful people like you and me. A God who wanted to share the riches of his inheritance through Jesus Christ with broken, sinful, rebellious people like you and me. You see, this truth is so important for us to understand because difficult times will come in this life and even times of judgment in your life will come. But as a child of God, you need to know that that judgment, that discipline in your life is not to separate you from the Father. Jesus experienced that for you three days and three nights. He experienced something that he had never known for all of eternity. What it would be like to, to be separated from his father. What it would be like in that moment to be disinherited from his father. The Trinity, in a sense, was broken for a moment. It was separated for a moment. It was condemned for those moments so that you and I could know that every time this loving Father disciplines our attitudes, disciplines our actions, disciplines our heart, that you know without a doubt it is not for condemnation's sake. It is to lovingly grow you and me up. So let me leave you with this final question. What is it in your life right now that if Christ's gaze came upon it, you know that you would shirk back in shame rather than draw close in the pleasure of his reward? Let me, let me put it maybe another way. What is it in this world that's become too big of a reward to you in a sense, a God to you, that you would so go after that reward that you'd be willing to sacrifice and risk an eternal reward that far exceeds 10 times, a hundredfold, infinite in some cases, the reward that you will ever receive from that earthly pursuit. You see, you have a good father only your best but his best is not just for a moment that you live on this earth his best is for all of eternity that awaits you in the new heaven and the new earth he wants you to enjoy that more than anything so imagine with me for a moment a church that passionately pursued the rewards that God holds out 
for his children. I could imagine a church like that. It would be a church that not only will enjoy fully everything that eternity has for them, and they will, but it'll be a church that radically loves one another and radically risks for its community here to share that treasure with everyone they come in contact with. Let's pray. Lord, this is an incredible truth. It's a rich truth that the God of the universe be willing to reward people like us. That's that's a crazy enough truth in and of itself. But Lord, the way you describe those rewards and even more so the way Jesus Christ pursued him. He's the only one who ever walked this earth that knew what the reward was. And look at how he lived. Look at how moved he was to live perfectly for you because he knew awaited him so Lord give us eyes to see and give us ears to hear the riches and pleasures and joys that await us in heaven so we might live more like your son for your glory God